As you've taken your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 9, and our ushers are walking to the front here. If you don't have a Bible, they're going to turn and walk towards the back. Just feel free to slip your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure a Bible gets into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible this morning, then we want you to consider this our gift to you today. We would really count it a joy to give you a copy of God's Word, and uh, we believe uh, in, in the power of God's Word, that God wrote a book and that He will speak to us by His Spirit, through His Word, and we're trusting, and we've already prayed that He would do that this morning. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Those words were written by John Newton in the mid-1700s. John Newton died as a beloved pastor known for his humility, for his gentleness, for his care, and for his grace. He was a great hymn writer and an abolitionist who once described himself as the great blasphemer. He was known in his former life as a slave trader and a hater of God. And he was yet a man who was chosen and changed by the grace and power of God, so radically different at the end of his life than he was at the beginning of his life. God is in the business of changing people. Acts 9 is the story of God changing a man named Saul and powerfully transforming his life. This is the beginning stages. This is what some might refer to as his conversion story, that time where God encountered him in a personal way, and he utterly, totally changed him. What we see is the story of Saul that is in many ways like the story of John Newton and really is not so different than your story and mine. While... We might look at a story like this and we might hear the testimonies of somebody like John Newton and think through the radical transformation that's taken place. We can be sure of this. Not everybody's conversion story looks the same, but each one is equally as miraculous as the next. Each one is a picture of how God takes a dead person and breathes life into their soul. It is nothing short of miraculous to see God change a life. Paul's story speaks through the pages of Scripture about our story in many ways. Or, potentially, if you're sitting here this morning, not a follower of Jesus Christ, it speaks to what your story could be if you set your eyes upon Jesus Christ. The first thing I want us to see this morning through the conversion of the Apostle Paul was this, and I want this to be very personal for you this morning, I was captive to my sin. I was captive to my sin. Chapter 9 picks up in verse 1 and 2 and gives us a little bit of a reminder of where we've been in the book of Acts, a little bit of context. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
This sets the stage for us of what will be a radical contrast, a radical transformation in the life and the behavior and the purpose of the Apostle Paul. One of the things that we're reminded of is that as the early church is getting going, it's beginning to spread the gospel, and it's beginning to spread it in power. And already in verses 1 and 2, we see as Saul starts to try and persecute the church, we see this, and it's helpful to remember this, the gospel is going forth. It is spreading in a very powerful way. Saul, we read about him earlier. He stood by as Stephen, a faithful man of God, was being stoned to death. Saul, as a young man, stood and he held the coats of those who were murdering Stephen. We're told in chapter 8 that he begins to pick up the pace himself and he begins to ravage the church, hauling off men and women and throwing them into prison. And now his job isn't done. He sets his gaze upon the surrounding cities. He looks to Damascus, hearing maybe that there are some there who have also embraced the way. I love that term for Christianity, don't you? The way. In the very beginning of the church, that this term was used even by those who did not know Jesus Christ and despised Jesus Christ. It was used tongue in cheek, but it to ironically described the very truth of the gospel message. It is, remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6? It is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was very clear that he alone was the way, the truth, and the life. And yet we see Saul. If you were to look at this picture of Saul, you might be able to describe him in a couple of ways. Saul was a brutal man. Saul was an angry man. Saul hated Christianity and Christians with every ounce of strength in his body. He was implacable. His, he was a bloodthirsty man. His goal was nothing short of the full extermination of the way. Listen to how he describes himself when he's standing later in his life as he's standing and giving a defense before King Agrippa in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. It'll be on the screen. He says this. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is the life of the Apostle Paul right up until this point. This has been his existence. This has been his life mission. He hates Jesus Christ, and he hates the church of Jesus Christ. It was this very hatred and the very persecution of Stephen, remember, that was the catalyst to the gospel going forth. The persecution of the church is the seed of the gospel. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. What's so fascinating, I think, about Saul is that he actually believed that he was serving God, and yet he was acting as his greatest enemy. Thinking he was free, he was actually a slave to his sin. He was actually doing not the will of God, but the will of Satan. But this picture of Saul, though extreme, I believe is a representation in one sense or another of all humanity. See, Saul is a picture of someone who is in outright rebellion against God. 
And we know from scripture, from cover to cover, that this is the description of humanity, that humanity exists in their fallen condition in utter rebellion against their creator, God. God exists as creator and therefore king of the universe, and man will not submit to the authority of God, and so he rebels and resists. He presses back because he wants to be his own king. Certainly, if we think about the rebellion of humanity, there are different categories of rebellion. There is active rebellion. You think of the Apostle Paul, who is actively pursuing the church of Jesus Christ. He's killing Christians, or at least has a part in that. He's putting them in prison. There are people all around the world today, aren't there, who are suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Right now around the world, there are people who are being pursued, who are being hunted, who are being persecuted, and are being put to death. And many of those people, by the way, from other religions and you know, extreme Islam, they believe, sadly, isn't this true? Sadly, in their ignorance, they believe they're doing the very will of God. There is a passive kind of rebellion that I believe is more prevalent, and this is what we see so often. There isn't the outright, necessarily flamboyant, verbal outrage and rejection of God as creator. There is the subtle, passive, I'm living for myself, I do what I want to do, and that's that. There's willful rebellion, and then there is rebellion out of sheer ignorance. But make no mistake about it, our rebellion is, at its core, a rejection of God's rightful authority in our lives. And here is Saul pursuing those who stand as representatives for God. John Newton, as I said, he described himself as the great blasphemer. In his former life, he was actually a, a, a sailor, and he was a sailor on slave ships throughout almost his entire early life. And it says this, even in, in, his, in his biography, he had a reputation for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery that shocked even most sailors. He was constantly being rebuked and chastised for insubordination. In his ministry, after he was saved, he, he writes that he had a terrible memory. He says that he was plagued with a, a terrible memory in his autobiography, his own writing from his own hand, it was filled with the sad story of, of what he called his forgettings. He says, I, I forgot, he says, again and again and again. I forgot, I forgot, I forgot. I totally forgot. This too, I soon forgot. He was constantly in his own writing to himself, reminding himself of how easy it was to forget all that he had done, all that he was. And in his study, I find it so interesting, in his study as a pastor, he had printed in bold text and fastened to his wall the scripture from the King James Version, Deuteronomy 15, 15. And this is what it said right above his study, thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman in the land of Egypt. Now just hold it for a second. He wanted constantly to remember that he was once a slave. Right? God wanted Israel to remember, don't forget who you were. Don't forget where you were when I came for you. Don't forget that you were held captive. You were an oppressed people. And he saw himself in this picture. Prior to his encounter with Jesus Christ, he knew that he was a man enslaved by his sin. He was trapped in sin and darkness. He was dead in his trespasses and sin. He was utterly helpless. I love, though, as he did what Deuteronomy 15, 15 goes on to say, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. 
He never wanted to forget who he was. You know, the apostle Paul, that's who Saul will become, is the same way. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. And you want to know what I love about Paul? He's never afraid to admit who he was. You notice that about Paul? He's constantly referring back. He's multiple times throughout the scriptures. He's going back to who he was. He's not ashamed to tell you that he was a blasphemer, that he was a persecutor of the church. He even says that he was not worthy to be called an apostle because of how he persecuted the church. He talks about his previous life in Judaism and he, and he says, look, I, I accumulated all this self-righteousness and then I counted it as nothing. It's as filth, it's worthless in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus. And I, I think as you look at the New Testament, one of the things that you should be reminded of is this, that Paul never wanted to forget who he was. And he's the one who wrote Romans 6 that talked about being enslaved in sin. In constantly remembering that, listen, here's why this is so important if you're a Christian. In constantly remembering that, we can greatly rejoice that, listen to the second point, I was captured by my Savior. Just like Newton had on his wall. Right? Don't forget, you were a slave, you were a bond servant in Egypt, but God redeemed you. When you were hopeless, God redeemed you. Saul has got these letters and he's got permission to go and persecute those who have signed up for the way. He wants to bring them back to Jerusalem. He wants to continue to persecute them, to imprison them. He wants many of them to die. And then it says in verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, about 135 miles outside of Jerusalem, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In this moment, Saul's life was about to change. But I want you to see this so clearly here. It's not by his own intention. It is only by God's divine intervention. Here he was, he was going about his life, thinking he was walking the right way, thinking he was even pleasing God, and he would have stayed there if God had not supernaturally intervened in a powerful way in his life. What a marvelous picture of the love and grace of God. God runs after Saul. Listen, the hunter becomes the hunted. God is pursuing Saul, even as Saul is pursuing those who claim to love Jesus Christ. As he was walking in rebellion, God confronted him in his rebellion. God had arranged this supernatural encounter. This was no accident. This was divinely ordained, divinely timed. As he walked along the road to Damascus, other texts and acts tell us it was about noontime. And all of a sudden, think about noon, when the sun is blazing, perhaps it's brightest, all of a sudden flashes of lightning all around him, listen, eclipsing the brilliance of the sun. He doesn't know it yet, but he is actually encountering the blazing glory of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is so bright and so brilliant, it makes the sun look like darkness. A voice speaks. Through the light, he hears the words, Saul, Saul, 
so personal, so intimate, so direct. Why are you persecuting me? Saul still somewhat confused, but you need to know this. Saul was a trained rabbi. He studied under the greatest rabbi of the time. He knew that when flashes of light like this came and a voice came out of nowhere, that he was standing in the presence of God or at the very least a messenger of God. There's no doubt in my mind that he believes that he is having a supernatural encounter. And so in an instant, he is humbled. And he asks, who are you, Lord? And the voice again says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Imagine in that moment the shock and horror he must have experienced. He's confronted right now with the reality that he has not only committed the gravest sin, but that he is now standing face to face with the one, the very one he has sinned against. Is Jesus speaking directly to him? And I love this. This is such a powerful reminder of the solidarity that Jesus has with those who are persecuted. Listen, when, when the church is persecuted, when you as an individual are persecuted for following Jesus Christ, it is not you primarily they're persecuting, but persecuting Jesus Christ himself. He stands with you. He is one with you. There's such great comfort in that. Paul, you'll notice what he does. It says in verse 4 that he falls to the ground. I mean, he just hits the dirt. He sees this light. It's so brilliant. It's blinding. He hears this voice, and he's falling, and I can imagine he's trembling on the ground in utter fear. His heart is in absolute turmoil and chaos. And I think this is such a powerful picture for the believer in Jesus Christ or for the unbeliever as well. You see, like Paul, every person must realize in encountering Jesus the immeasurable chasm between who they are and who God is. There is an unbelievably wide gulf when you stand in the presence of Jesus between who he is and who you are. And the only proper response is to put your face in the dirt. A picture of utter humility, of finding yourself to be totally worthless in the presence of the one who is of eternal worth and value. This is the very response, you remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God and he sees this vision and what he sees I believe is actually Jesus Christ himself. He sees the blazing brilliance of the glory of Jesus Christ and what does he do? I mean, he falls to his face. It's like John in Revelation, falls to his face in the presence of Jesus Christ in his glory and I love the response of Isaiah. He says, woe is me. He says, for I am ruined. You see, in that moment, as he stood before the holiness of God, he realized exactly who he was. And there was no denying it. He wasn't able to, to stand and declare his own worth, his own value, his own righteousness. In fact, all Isaiah does is recognize his sinfulness. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, he says. I'm a sinner. You see, the glory of Christ exposes the evil of our heart. The floodlight of his glory reveals the filth of our sin. And there is in that moment, like Isaiah, and I believe what Paul is expressing here on his face, is there is a moment where there's a recognition of deserved judgment. 
this point, he's laid so low. What he doesn't realize is that God is actually capturing his heart in this moment. Acts 22, verse 10, on the screen behind me, says this. It adds a little bit of the conversation. It says, and, and he said, uh, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Though Luke doesn't record those words, what shall I do, in Acts chapter 9, we believe that it actually occurred. We're getting a bit of a summary in chapter 9 that's filled in a little bit more later on. But that phrase, what shall I do, is such a a picture of humility. It is a picture, listen, of brokenness before God. This is the picture of someone who has been utterly captured by Jesus Christ. See, the evidence that we have been captured by our Savior is seen in the depth of our surrender. It's wholesale. We have nothing to offer. We simply ask question, what can I do? Tell me, tell me, I am totally unworthy. We bow to him as Lord. Paul's later radical calls to discipleship imply nothing short of total surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Roy Clemens says that he does not use the phrase, just listen for a second, hold off on that quote for a second. Back it one more off. There we go. I don't want you to look at that yet. It's coming. But Roy Clemens says that he does not use the phrase, um, I've decided for Christ. You know, you, know you, use, you hear those terminologies, or I made a decision for Christ, or we had 20 people make a decision for Christ, or he doesn't like the term, or he doesn't use the term, I, I committed to Christ. Now, he says this, though decisions and commitment are certainly involved. I want to make sure that's clear. There's no question about that in the Bible. There must be a decision. You must make a commitment to follow Christ. But listen, listen to this. He says this, and here's the quote. Now we're ready. He says, conversion, here's why. He's why he, he leans away from those kind of statements. Conversion is at root, not a decision nor a commitment, but a surrender to the supreme authority of Jesus. I, I just want you to see why that's important to say it. Remember, at its root, at the, like the very ground level, it is a total, complete surrender to the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. And here's why this is more important than using words like, I made a decision or I committed. Those, those things are true. Listen, it's one more layer above this, which is the most important thing. Because at this level, what we're saying is, it is fully and completely out of my control. And what it's saying is this, I, I'm giving up control. You see, when, when, you, when you focus on, I decided to follow Jesus and I'm committed, oftentimes what can be kind of miscommunicated was something that somehow you figured out or that you did all by yourself. And when the really, the most important aspect of your conversion is this, that God came after you. That God utterly bankrupted you. He stripped you down. He wore you out. He showed you that you had nothing to offer him. All you could do was come in total, complete surrender to him. And that, by the way, is a freeing reality in our hearts. So here he is. He's laid bare and he's asking the question, what do I do? And look at verse 6. I love these words, but rise. There's hope here. There's hope. You don't have to stay low. I'm not finished with you yet. I won't leave you by yourself. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. God had completely crushed Saul. And that scene in how he responds in verse 9, for three days he not only has no vision, but he neither eats nor drinks. This is not a mere psychological response. This is not a shock to his system. Listen, this is a demonstration of his repentance before God. He in this moment has recognized that he is a sinner before a holy God, that he has been living in rebellion. And so often in the, in the word of God, listen, fasting and prayer, which is certainly implied here, are marks of someone who is truly repentant before the Lord. And I believe that's the heart of Saul here. He's recognized who he is. He's like Isaiah, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. I have no hope apart from you, God. Have mercy on me, God. Right here, his pride has been broken. And I love this because he left for Damascus seeing but blind. He now enters Damascus blind but seeing. Every one of us, there's no exceptions here. No one is ready to listen to God until we have been utterly stripped and broken of our pride. You remember what Jesus said in Mark 2.17? It says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And Jesus' point is so crystal clear. Unless you're willing to admit that you are sick, unless you're willing to humble yourself and say, you need a doctor, you need a solution to your greatest problem of sin, there is no hope for you. But the moment you come broken, the moment you run to the great doctor, the moment you're able to say, I cannot heal myself, God meets you there. There's no doubt Saul is experiencing the immense weight of the conviction of his sin and the shame. I mean, think about what he has done. Think about what he has done to God and to the Messiah whom he was looking for. And then the moment of hope comes, he hears the words, what shall I do? As he says, what shall I do? He hears the words, rise. And I, I just love that thought. Just let that sink in for a minute. He says, look, I'm going to pick you up out of the dirt. Let's get up. We're not done here. And so often in our shame and guilt, we live, don't we, in despair and hopelessness. So often we find ourselves, you know, treading water, in, even as Christians, in our spiritual lives. And we feel like we're drowning. And we just have so much despair because of our sin. And we get stuck But I think there's hope here for us, even for Christians here, that that is never God's desire for us. God never wants you living in despair and hopelessness. God never wants you remaining in the despair and shame and guilt of your sin. Jesus paid it all, amen? I mean, he took it all so that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And like Saul, we must all begin with walking by faith in the Son of God. He hears God's words, rise and go. He has surrendered himself. There is repentance and faith. And he follows him. He follows him weak and he follows him needy. He needs the help of others to guide him into the city. I love that picture. It is the picture of a broken, humbled human being who is now ready to engage in a deep relationship with his God.
This is the way change happens in the Christian life. This is the way change happens if you're an unbeliever. You begin by hearing his word and you break under that word by surrendering your life through repentance and faith. And then you follow him. Christian, same thing for you today. Maybe you're living in sin and you're hearing his word and it's convicting you and it's bringing that sense of shame and as you surrender in repentance and faith, your heart is filled with hope as you see and hear rise and you stand and you follow him. You ever think, why, why is God so kind and gracious to come after us? You ever thought about it? I think about that often in my life. And then the longer I walk in the Christian life, the more I begin to think about this. Why? I mean, isn't it true? The longer you live, the more sin you see in your life, right? And, and sadly, isn't it true? The closer you get to God, the more sin you see in your life. Right? The closer you get to the light, the more you're, you're exposed for who you truly are. And I find myself often wondering, God, how, why in the world did you pursue me? I mean, and believe me, I know this for a fact. I know God pursued me. I know I wasn't pursuing him when God got a hold of my heart. Why has God been so gracious to you? Why did God initiate this relationship with you? Well, I think, simply put, it's because I have been chosen for his story. I've been chosen for his story. Many of you have heard the phrase before, but history is really his story. All of our existence is God unfolding a divine drama. He is the major character, but he is unfolding a storyline of redemption. He is redeeming unto himself a people whom he has chosen. And every one of us has been designed by God to know him and to be used by him. And that's what both Saul and a man named Ananias are about to discover and what every person who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ must too embrace and discover. We all have a part to play in God's story. In verse 10, look what it says here. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here, am, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. So interesting to me, God chooses this man, Ananias. I love it. It's like so many of the faithful saints of old, especially in the Old Testament, God calls out and the answer is, here I am, Lord. There's such a readiness and a willingness to hear from God. God chose this man, Ananias. He singled him out and he had a specific role for him to play. And, and here's maybe what's incredibly helpful just to make note of. This event, this, in chapter 9 here, this is one of the most significant events in the entire New Testament. The conversion of Saul, the transformation of Saul into the Apostle Paul is one of the most crucial events. Listen, if there is no Paul, there is no church. The Gentiles don't get reached. This is the plan of God unfolding right here. And Ananias has been brought in by God to play a very small but significant role. In fact, we will never hear the name Ananias again throughout the rest of the New Testament. This is the only walk-on part he has in the story to our knowledge, what we see. He's a well-respected man. He's a devout disciple in Damascus. He's respected by all and here he is called to engage with Saul and very specifically, listen, to care for Saul. 
And just imagine, put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Imagine the horror when God told Ananias, Ananias, I need you to go and I need you to find this man Saul and here's exactly where you're gonna find him. Lord, I mean, I'm here, but is this a joke? Is this really, really what you want me to do? Lord, tell me you're just testing me like you did Abraham. Like, tell me you're not gonna really make me do this, Lord. You want me to go and meet and heal who? And look at verses 13 and 14. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I mean, there's a sentence in here, isn't there, where he's like, Lord, do you really know what you're doing? How often are we like that with God? God, you want me to go and, and talk to who? Understandably, from his perspective, listen, this is a suicide mission. This is a suicide mission. It's like, this is like God calling you right now to go and set up camp in the middle of ISIS to become a missionary. Really, Lord? Are you sure you know what you're doing, God? How often do we question God's design in calling on our lives? How quick we are to suggest that maybe we know better than God. From his perspective, Saul was a lost cause, right? This is what he's thinking, God, there's no way. This is the man who's killing your people. But look at God's response in verses 15 and 16. This is so sweet. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Far from being a lost cause, Saul is referred to right here as a chosen instrument, and don't miss the personal aspect of this, of mine. He's a chosen instrument of mine, don't you see? Like, I love him. My heart has been set upon him. He is mine. I am capturing him right now. This is such a powerful reminder, isn't it, to never write anyone off. There is no one who is a lost cause. If God can save the apostle Paul, he can save anybody. And just... I love the, how much hope there is there. As Paul said, listen to 1 Timothy 1.15 on the screen behind me. It says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I love that. That's Paul's testimony. So don't you get it? I was the worst. You're like, well, I'm a pretty bad sinner. Paul's like, I'm the worst. Well, I've done some pretty bad things. I'm the worst. I am the chief. I am the foremost. Do you know what I did? I went after people who said they love God and I wanted to kill them. The fact that the worst of sinners could be converted is a sign that the least likely people can be saved. Amen? I mean, give me an amen if you're a testimony of that. Amen? Like, 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 who are we? God came after us when we were nobody, when we were so unworthy, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, when we were living not as friends of God, not even as acquaintances of God, but what does Paul say in Romans 5.10? As enemies of God. Wow, what 
an incredible picture. And this should encourage us to dream about, to pray for, and to work toward the conversion of even the most resistant people and the greatest enemies of the gospel. And maybe today you're in here and you know some, you have a loved one and you have someone who has turned their back on everything that you have shared with them, on everything they maybe know to be true, and they've decided to walk their own way, and they're like that prodigal son, and you're like that parent, standing, looking, waiting, and maybe you've given up hope this morning. Maybe you said, there's no way, God, I'm throwing the towel in. There's no way that you're gonna go after them. It's over, they're so far gone. They're so living in sin and rejection of you, and I just can't do this anymore. And God's saying, do you have hope? Turn to me, lean into me. There's no one who's too far gone. No one. Don't give up hope. There's so many prodigals, I believe, that are gonna come home because of the prayers of God's people in this place, listen, who did not give up hope, but persevered, trusting that God would be gracious and merciful. And some of you, you just, you can't even utter the words anymore. And let me encourage you, there are people in here who want to just rub shoulders with you, wrap their arms around you, and bear those burdens with you, and lift their voices to the Lord on your behalf, and call out to God and plead with you. I love how personal this is. It explains why, why Paul talks so frequently about God's choosing. You ever notice that in Paul's writings? He never shies away from this language, and neither should we, by the way. Don't be ashamed of the fact that God chose you. Delight in that fact. Paul can't help but talk about it. Everywhere you turn in Scripture, he's talking about God's choosing work, God's electing work, God's grace in saving, and I just want to encourage you, that is the greatest mystery in all the world that God would set his heart upon us sinners. He knew it so intimately, the Apostle Paul did, that it radically shaped his life in ministry. I mean, and even though he would suffer, right, suffer, he will be shown how much he will suffer for the sake of my name, of course he would suffer. We know the story of the Apostle Paul. He suffered immensely. What do you think held him? What do you think captured him in those moments of being stoned and beaten and imprisoned? I have been chosen by God. I love, I love Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Listen to this, listen, just find rest for your soul in this this morning. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And you say, why would he do this? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Man, that just fires me up. That overwhelms me with gratitude. The story is not over. It's still being written. We have been chosen to play a role in God's redemption story. Paul was chosen to play a major role in taking the gospel to the Gentile world. He would stand before kings, he would declare before the Jews and Gentiles alike. God would use him to plant countless churches and to see the gospel begin to take the world by storm. And Ananias was chosen to support Paul. And if it wasn't for this text, Ananias would never be known. Who remembers the name of the person who led D.L. Moody to Jesus Christ? 
Who remembers the person who discipled Billy Graham? God does, and that is enough. We are all chosen instruments. The question is, will we obey when God says go? Even when it's hard. Even when it's hard, even when, even when we don't think it's the right thing and we're questioning God, and I love that about Ananias. He does exactly what God says. He questions, he has some doubts, but he goes. Go when it's hard. Listen, go love that person who hates you. Go pray for the one who is persecuting you. Go serve that person who is hard to love. Go and invite that person over for a meal today. Go and share Christ with that person. Go make things right with that person. Go deal with that sin right now. Our hearts, our hearts are being called to go in so many different ways by the word of God. But the truth is that I can only go when I am changed by his spirit can only go when I am changed by His Spirit. And in this moment, everything changed for Paul. Probably, I love this, the first words that Saul heard from a Christian after his conversion, listen to what they are right here in verse 17. The Lord said, to, excuse me, uh, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, listen to the words, first words you hear is, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Such words, listen, of grace and forgiveness and acceptance. John Stott says it must have been music to his ears. The arch enemy of the church was welcomed as a brother. The dreaded fanatic was received as a member of the family. I love that. Listen, Ananias was changed too, wasn't he? He changed how he looked at Paul. He listened to God and he embraced what God had said about this man. And instead of his own preconceived ideas of who this man was and what he would be, he leaned in and he trusted God. The Spirit of God was working in Ananias too. He changed how he viewed Paul, no longer as an enemy, but as a brother. No longer someone to flee from, but someone to run to. Not someone to avoid, but someone to love. Now you see the love of Christ reaching out to a new believer in spite of his past. What a powerful picture of what the church is to be, amen? He practically and spiritually cares for Saul. He lays his hands on him. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This, loved ones, is our calling as a church. We are to love and care for those who are enemies of the cross. Those who were once despised but now are embraced into the family of God. And sometimes that's incredibly hard. And in our flesh, we resist things like this. We gravitate towards people who are likable. We gravitate towards people who are like us. Uh, we re resist and we often reject in our flesh people who are different, uh, people we look down upon. And in the grace of God, the body of Christ becomes someone and something that pulls people in. It is unlike an unlikely group of people 
who are knit into a unified family. So how do we do this? Well, it's easier to do this when we remember that we too were once enemies of the cross. Remember what Paul says in Romans 5.10. And let God be our example here. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Ananias is one of the obscure heroes of the church. The Lord God used him in a small but important way. And I want to encourage you this morning, not all of our roles are going to be equal in the divine story of God. But it's not about the significance of your role. It's about your faithfulness to what God has called you to. There are three things that happen here to Saul that I just want to end on and take note of. Notice first that he was healed. It says that the scales, something like scales, fell off of his eyes and he regained his sight. The physical scales falling to the ground mirror Saul's spiritual transformation. He came from blindness to sight. He was in the dark and now he's in the light. There has been a genuine, powerful, divine, supernatural transformation and change that's taken place. And so what does he do? He gets baptized. This symbolizes, as we've heard before, the forgiveness and cleansing work of God in the life of a sinner, unified and knit into the family of God. Old self, gone, new person raised to life in Jesus Christ. And he is strengthened. The time for repentance is over, at least in the sense of that moment of salvation. The fast is over. He takes food. And here's why I think this is important. Because he has seen God's grace and embraced God's grace. And now he will live in God's grace. He's not going to live in the guilt and shame. That's why he can write in Philippians 3, right? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead. I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He had been completely changed. The same spirit that changed him is now living inside him. All things had become new. The one who had persecuted Christ now belonged to Christ. This is God's promise to all who turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Healed, forgiven, empowered, totally changed. John Newton lived to be 82 years old, and he continued to preach and have an active ministry until beset by fading health in the last two or three years of his life. Even then, John Newton never ceased to be amazed by God's grace, and he told his friends this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Reflecting on the change he had experienced, he penned one of the greatest hymns of all time, Amazing Grace. Listen to these words. In fact, let me invite you to stand. Let me read the first chorus, and then I'm going to invite you to join as we sing it together. He says this, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. May it be the joy of our hearts to sing for all eternity of His amazing grace. Amen? Let's sing it together.
privilege and a joy to gather every Sunday and to celebrate and to praise God for His amazing grace. Amen? That's why we do this. That's why we get together every week. We need to be reminded that we have a God who graciously has come after us, who graciously embraces us, who has loved us beyond our wildest imaginations. And then in His grace, He sends us out to go and be a part of His story to others. I want to encourage you as we leave this place, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never experienced His amazing grace, you can this morning. You can surrender yourself to Him. We're going to have some leaders who are standing up at the front. If you need to talk more about that, we would count it a joy and a privilege to meet with you, to talk with you, and to pray with you. If you need prayer for anything this morning, if you need some burdens lifted off your shoulders up to the Lord, please take advantage of that this morning as well. It's our joy to gather as a church family, and we take that seriously. We are family. We care for one another. We love one another. And we love to seek God's grace together. Let me leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. So often he closes his letters with this very short phrase, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Go in the grace and power of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Have a great week in him.